as the November election is, is drawing near, uh, a lot of people, probably many here, thinking about just the whole political landscape, the issues at stake. Don't worry, I'm not really going to talk about the election. But uh, really just the values and the principles that this country was founded upon. And, you know, really America prides itself on being founded on the principles of freedom. We're willing to go to great lengths. We've had um, men and women in the armed services willing to, to lay down their lives to protect the freedoms that we enjoy, to bring freedom to other parts of the world. But what does freedom provide us? Is it, is it an end in itself, or is it, is it a means to some greater end? And we can all agree that human beings should be free. They should not be enslaved. They should not be oppressed or ruled by tyrants. And then even at a theological level, at a gospel level, we recognize that God created us as human beings to be free creatures, free from slavery to sin and death and Satan, free to know him and to worship him. God's redemptive work in the world is, in a sense, to bring about that freedom that he intended for his, his creation. But again, is freedom an end in itself? Does it matter how we use our freedom? What kind of a person would take their freedom, take their, their rights and their privileges, and lay them down for the sake of others? Could it be that the highest and noblest act of all would be to have absolute and total freedom and spend that freedom, even lay it aside for the sake of love. Well, today we're going to be going through, concluding the second half of Matthew chapter 17. Um, if you want to turn there, uh, Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, uh, this is where Jesus comes back down the mountain after the transfiguration, and he jumps right back into his ministry of healing and teaching. So we read through that passage, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, 
from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord God, uh, we just pray now as we look at your word and as I speak that you would, you would reveal Jesus Christ to us, that we would behold him in his, his beauty, his glory, his majesty, God, and, and in his humility, and that we would be transformed into his likeness by, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by, by your work your supernatural work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a, what a wonderful picture we have in this passage of the humility of Christ. His, his patience with our unbelief, his faithfulness to correct and to teach his disciples, and his love that lays aside its own interest for the sake of others. This, this passage really challenges us, I believe, to put our faith, all of our faith and trust, in the humble Savior who laid down his rights for love's sake. And that's really my prayer for us and my, my, my hope that you would see uh, in, in God's word this morning that we, we must put our faith in the humble Savior who laid down his rights for love's sake. And it's really going to be a simple outline. Um, the first point is the object of faith, the object of faith, and then the second point will be the freedom of love. Uh, Let's begin with with the object of faith. And really what we're going to see in in these opening sections is is really the misplaced faith. Our faith can can so easily, so often be misplaced. So in the the first part of our passage, we uh, actually, going back to the beginning of chapter 17, we saw this incredible display of the glory of Jesus Christ in the transfiguration. He was shining like the sun, transfigured before his disciples. A voice spoke from heaven. But now, Jesus and the disciples come back down the mountain, and they're right back into the ugliness, the misery, the failure that characterizes our fallen world. And Jesus comes face to face, not only with demon possession and and devastating sickness, though that would be bad enough, but, but also just with the unbelief and the failure of his own disciples. So this, this boy's father humbly comes and kneels before the Lord, asking for mercy. You know, this scene reminds me of the other story a couple chapters back in Matthew 15 that Pastor Matthew preached on of the demon-oppressed daughter and, the, and the, the mother, the Canaanite woman, coming with her great faith and crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. And it's just, it's really this heartbreaking, heartrending scene. You know, we, we live in a world filled with, with so much pain, so much suffering. Sometimes it's just overwhelming, especially with our technology and media and the internet. And we just can't bear to face it all. And yet, when it comes to a child who's suffering, that just takes it to a whole other level. Another level of outrage, of agony, of indignation over the, the pain that, that a, 
a young one, a child, is experiencing. As a parent, I know that seeing your own child suffer is possibly the worst thing that you can imagine. What would you not do? What would you not be willing to sacrifice, to rescue them, to relieve their pain, to save them? We feel for this father because you can almost see the desperation in his eyes as he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. But what makes it even worse in this scenario is he brings the son to the disciples and Jesus isn't there. He's up on the mountain with Peter and James and John. And so he, he, he comes and, and he finds the other nine disciples. And so instead of a direct touch from the Savior, he looks to these disciples for help. And they let him down. They're unable, unable to heal him. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then I, I believe there's a warning here for all of us don't be like the disciples in this story. And of course, this applies to, to, to leaders, those, those who have um, positions such as an elder, or a deacon, or a small group, community group leader. But really, it applies to all of us as Christians. Because it's such a tragedy when someone comes to the church, comes to the disciples of Jesus, comes broken, in need of healing, in need of compassion, of love, in need of a touch from the master. But the disciples get in the way. They, they try to take care of it themselves. And they let that person down. They fail. Now, clearly, I'm not saying that success can ever be guaranteed in, 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 any, in any case. Often, quite often, those, those who come to the church come seeking healing, seeking care, they, they won't like everything we have to offer. Because as, as the church, as those who have the gospel, we proclaim grace and we proclaim truth. We, we love and we show compassion and we call people to repent and submit to Jesus Christ. So of course, not everyone is going to like what the church has to offer. But the thing is, if we rely on our own wisdom, if we trust in our own abilities rely on on self instead of 100% on God's help and power, then we are sure to fail. If we allow our words and actions to be motivated by pride and think that we we have all the answers because of our our good grasp on the truth or because of our, our sharp understanding of scripture, if we fail to walk with humility, then we're sure to fail. Oh, friends, it brings such such pain, such disappointment when, when the people of God or the, when the followers of Jesus fail in showing love and fostering healing. And so, so I just uh, challenge and, and exhort you, don't rush to act in your own strength or wisdom. Don't rush to assume that you have all the answers or, or that maybe that person needs to hear all the answers. Maybe they need someone to listen when you find yourself in over your head, then pray. Pray for guidance. Pray for direction from the Holy Spirit. Take a long, hard look at Jesus and consider whether, whether your instinctual response is, is in line with his character. 
and enlist counsel, enlist wisdom from others. Because this, this is such vital importance. You know, the, the people who, who walk away wounded or disillusioned, you know, all of us know those people. They're friends of ours. They're, they're family members. And, and so often, they, they, never, they never come back. So don't let us, as a church, not rely on our own wisdom, our own power, but cry out to the Savior. He alone has the power to do what is impossible for us. And so we, we turn then, so often our, our faith can be misplaced. We trust in our own strength. We turn now to the object of our faith, which of course is Jesus. He is the one who's worthy of our trust. Looking again at verse 17, when Jesus answers the Father and says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. This is the the patient and long-suffering Savior. He meets the need. He brings restoration and deliverance to this, this boy, to this family. But then the disciples take Jesus aside and ask, well, what's the deal? Why, why couldn't we do that? After all, you know, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples and he had given them authority back in Matthew chapter 10. He said, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Jesus had given them the authority. So why did they fail? Why were they unable to heal the boy. The answer here in Matthew 17, Jesus says, is because of your little faith. And in Mark's gospel, the parallel account in, in Mark 9, 28, Jesus tells the disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And really, both of these answers point to the same problem. Their faith was lacking. Now, the issue is not, clearly, it's not that they only had a small quantity of faith, Because Jesus says right here that with faith like a grain of a mustard seed, one could move mountains. So the issue has to be with the, the quality of their faith. Their faith was too much grounded in their own authority, their own ability. I mean, hadn't Jesus commissioned them? Didn't they have the power, the authority to heal, to cast out demons? Weren't they the chosen twelve, you know, in the inner circle? But the master rebukes them, saying, you have little faith. Uh, the, the commentator, Bruner, uh, speaking of this, this passage, says, Jesus does us a great service by this extremely simple diagnosis of the source of Christian powerlessness, little faith. We tend to locate our problem in less deep locations, in our temper, weakness, habits, Lust, addiction, mood, vanity, or ambition, when in fact the root of all this bitter fruit is our failure to believe God. The disciples' faith needed to be grounded completely in reliance on the power and ability of God, in the, in the resources that were available to them through Christ. And this is no less true for us today. We have nothing in and of ourselves. We have no power or ability Apart from God, the only resources that we can bring to bear that have any uh, lasting effects, that have any lasting healing or good, are the resources that come 
to us through the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit we have from Christ. And as Mark's account again highlights, the disciples apparently weren't praying. Jesus says this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Did you try prayer? It seems the answer is, is no. But you know, as easy as it is to feel dismayed at the disciples' failure, how often do we try to help, try to act, try to comfort without the kind of reliance on God's help that prayer demonstrates? You know, one of my favorite New Testament passages is in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 10, where Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, when we're pressed, of course we're going to offer lip service to the fact that you know, we can't accomplish any good apart from God's help. But prayer is the means God has given us to actively put our faith in him, not in ourselves, to demonstrate our dependence and our reliance on him for strength. And Jesus tells the disciples, if you just have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, to to move a mountain is really just a a kind of a a Jewish proverbial way to refer to a great accomplishment. You remember even in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I have the faith to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And then when Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you, it's interesting. Matthew, he uses a word here, that's, that's from the same family and the same root in the Greek as in, in verse 16 and verse 19. So in verse 16, the father says, the disciples were unable, unable to heal my son. And then the disciples come to Jesus and they say, why were we unable to cast out the demon? And here Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, nothing will be unable for you. And and the mustard seed illustration teaches us it's not about the size or the measure of our faith. It's not how strong our faith might be. It's all about the object, the object of our faith. Uh, David Platt, he writes that the disciples had likely begun to look at their ministry as mechanical, being dependent on their own ability instead of on God. Jesus pointed them in a different direction the way of trusting in his power. By telling them that their faith need only be the size of a mustard seed, Jesus was urging them to focus on the object of their faith. A little bit of faith in a great God can accomplish great things. So what is the object of your faith? It only takes a tiny grain of faith directed toward the right object. Where where is your faith directed? Now, if you're here uh, this morning as an unbeliever, I'm so grateful you're here with us. Now, you may think of yourself as, as a person without faith, who, who puts their faith and their trust in no one and in nothing. But I believe if you would, would take an honest look at your life and your own heart, you'll discover that each and every person has an object of faith. Perhaps for you, it's, it's science in the, the hope the pursuit of being able to understand and explain and even to control 
the, the observable natural world. The belief that through scientific knowledge we can fix the problems of humanity, fix the problems of our planet. Perhaps it's a political party or, or, or some inspiring leader. Perhaps the object of your faith is a, is a, a spouse or a partner, a lover. It could be someone in your life now or someone that you hope to find one day. Someone who will complete and fulfill you, bring meaning and satisfaction to your life. Or maybe the object of your faith is you. Your own ability, your own persistence, your own hard work, personality, or looks. You can save yourself. You can conquer your giants. You can overcome your demons just by sheer grit and determination. You can prove your value, prove your worth to yourself and to others. As the, uh, the Olympic runner Harold Abraham says in the film Chariots of Fire, just, just before an Olympic race, he said, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Now, whatever it may be that you've put your faith in, my prayer is that, that you could see that no human being, no politician, no lover, certainly not yourself, can bear up under the, the crushing weight, this kind of pressure. None is worthy to be the object of your faith. But there is one, the Son of God, the man, Jesus Christ. This divine Son who, to whom belong all glory, honor, and power, this one who was, was transformed just a few verses earlier at the top of a mountain with his face shining like the sun, and he deserved to ascend back into heaven and to enjoy the delight of fellowship with his Father, but he walked back down that mountain knowing he would meet with all the misery of our world, knowing he would journey to Jerusalem to die, and he did it for that desperate man's son to heal him. He did it for his disciples who were powerless without him. He did it for us, for me, for you. Mark 10, 45 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus died the death we deserve, taking our place so that all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him would receive eternal life rest from their labors, an end of seeking to justify their own existence by their own inadequate strength. And this crucified Jesus, he did not remain dead, but after three days he rose victorious from the grave, proving that he had conquered sin and death. That is the gospel, my friend, and that is the foundation of the Christian faith. If, you, if you're interested in what you've heard today, if you're interested in learning more about what it might look like to put your faith in Jesus, then uh, you please come talk to me after the service. Talk to one of the elders here. We'd, we would be so happy to have that conversation with you. And for the Christian, you are, are now already defined by your relationship with Jesus. You came to an end of yourself, an end of self-reliance, and you trusted in Christ for salvation, Christ alone. But the question is, are you continuing to depend on his strength? Or are you trying to follow him in your own strength, your own power? 
As the hymn says, venture on him, venture wholly, let no other trust intrude. So look at your own life. Look at how you spend your time and resources, the conversations you have, the things you read. Consider whether your eyes are firmly fixed on Christ as the object of your faith. Are you relying on your own wisdom, your personality, your leadership skills, your position, your, even your character, your family, being respected and well-behaved? Our faith must be in Christ alone, and our reliance must be on his strength. And that leads us to the, the second point in conclusion— The freedom of love. The freedom of love. Let's look again at verse 22. Here again, Jesus foretells his death. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Again, we see Jesus' commitment to go and die. And in this, we see his great love. As it says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But what we need to be struck with most of all is that this is Jesus, the Son of God, with all power and authority. And yet, because of love, he goes to make the ultimate sacrifice. He has the absolute freedom of the Son of God. He can call on legions of angels. He can command the allegiance of every creature in heaven and on earth, and yet he surrenders himself up to death to save a weak, rebellious people. Christ lays down his rights for love's sake. And then this is illustrated for us again in a unique way in this this little story at the end of the chapter about the temple tax, beginning in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So this is a, this is a temple tax. It was, it was based on Exodus 30. Um, if you want to go look at it later, 30 uh, verses 13 through 16. But it was a tax at the time which, which went to the, the tabernacle. And in Jesus' day, it was being collected and uh, applied for the temple but before Peter can, can even walk in the door and bring the matter up, Jesus poses this question about, do kings take taxes from their own sons or from others? And the obvious answer is others. And Jesus concludes, then the sons are free. And so the, the point here is that Jesus is the son of God. His father is ruler over the entire universe. If you're a prince and your father is the king, you don't pay taxes. It's not your money putting food on the king's table. And if your father is God, you don't pay the temple tax. It's not your money that, that pays for the priests or, or the upkeep of the temple. That just makes sense. But it goes even further than that because Jesus himself is the true temple of God. So in, in John 2.19, he said to the Jews, destroy this temple 
and in three days I'll raise it up. And he was speaking the temple of his body. Because Jesus is the meeting place between heaven and earth. He is the one mediator between God and men. So we no longer go to a building to come into God's presence because Jesus is the one who brings access to God's presence. He is the greater temple, replacing and outshining the old one in every way. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. So why would the true temple, the glory of God in human form, be required to pay a temple tax? He has every right, every prerogative to excuse himself. But instead, just after he's explained to Peter the freedom he has as the Son of God, he concludes, however, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook. The absolutely free and sovereign Son of God who lays down his rights for love's sake. He, he is the king of kings. He has power and authority over creation, over the sea. He tells Peter to catch a fish, and he predicts there will be a coin in its mouth. This is a miracle. And the coin is there so Jesus can pay the tax and Peter's. Because Jesus is on a mission to seek and save the lost. So he's not going to stand on principle. He's not going to make a fuss. He's not going to pull rank He doesn't want to cause unnecessary offense or misunderstanding. He doesn't want the tax collectors or the crowds to to draw the conclusion that he opposes the temple or or what it stands for. He doesn't want to get into a, a big dispute or a controversy over this issue that would distract his disciples from the crucial mission that he's on to go and die in Jerusalem. So we should marvel at this humble Savior, this humble Son. The Apostle Paul writes concerning him, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what was Paul's point in writing these words? His point was that the Philippians should have this same mind, that they should humble themselves, not grasping after power, position, or acclaim, but laying down their lives, imitating the Savior. And in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul also writes that in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.19, he says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And that's where he goes on to say, To the Jews I became as a Jew, to those under the law I became as one under the law. And then even Peter, the, the very disciple in this story, the one who had the encounter with the tax collectors and with Jesus, he writes to the church in 1 Peter 2, as, as Michelle read earlier, and I, I really find the parallels in this passage fascinating. Because first Peter reminds them in verse 9 of their incredible new identity as Christians. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. They are united with Christ, and so they are royalty, God's chosen people. But Peter challenges and exhorts them to live honorable lives and to perform good works for the glory of God. 
He, he calls them not to abuse their freedom, but to subject, subject themselves to the governing authorities. Why? He says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter, Peter's saying you don't want to cause unnecessary offense. You don't want to give foolish people any occasion to make ignorant accusations against you. As Martin Luther wrote, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. This is the paradox of Christianity. Yes, church, you are free. You are princes and princesses seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Romans 8 speaks of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But here's how you live as people who are free. You don't use your freedom to hurt others. Galatians 5.13 says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You don't use your freedom to lift yourself up. You don't use it to, to do evil and cover that up. You use it to serve and to honor and to love And that's what Jesus Christ did on this earth. And as Peter writes a little farther down in in chapter 2, 1 Peter, Christ left us an example that we might follow in his steps. Jesus Christ is the humble and merciful Son of God who laid down his rights for love's sake. He alone is worthy of all our faith, all our trust, And the only reason we ever can have the freedom to love is because he first loved us. So let's look to him this morning. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his humility, his love, his complete freedom as your son and yet he laid his life down for the salvation of many we are eternally thankful grateful joyful we pray as we behold him in your word that you would make us individually and make us as a church reflect the character the glory of Jesus Christ, to a hurting and broken world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this time, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper together. This is uh, a memorial, a reminder, a symbol of what Jesus did for us on that cross. His body broken for us. His blood poured out as the new covenant. And this is, uh, this is a meal for Christians, and so that means if, if you are, are someone who has, who has made a, a commitment and a profession of your faith publicly, as we do in the waters of baptism, and if you are, are walking in, in discipleship in a, in a community as we do uh, as part of a local church, then you are welcome to take this meal, even if you're visiting from another church. And if that doesn't describe you, uh, then we would just... Uh, Ask that you use this time and just reflect on what you've heard and reflect on what it would mean to follow Christ in that way. So we're going to uh, be dismissed row by row, starting from the back. 
uh, come up and take the elements back to your seat, and then one of the elders will, will lead us in taking communion together.